One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. Hi, I'm Andrew. Hi, and I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be discussing the latest in Partygate. And in a special I Ask Alva, we discuss the upcoming Northern Ireland Assembly election. So it's a fast moving day today in Westminster and we actually recorded this episode of the New Statesman podcast on Thursday morning ahead of MPs debating and voting on an inquiry into whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament over Partygate and ahead of the government's decision to U-turn on opposing Labour's motion after originally planning to wreck it. So I started by asking Andrew what the government's plan was for getting past Partygate. A big guess, Anoush, but I think we will look back in months ahead and say this was the week when the Conservative Party essentially decided that Boris Johnson was going to get away with it. Right. This is That's what's really going on. And it's a mixture of the war and his combative performances in the Commons and a mixture of, in a sense, a fear of taking him on among a lot of Tory MPs, doubt about who will take over if he did go, worry that the Conservative tribes will simply go to war without Boris Johnson holding them together, many, many other things. Now, as I've written in the New Statesman this week, I think they're making a mistake. I think the public have not forgotten Partygate, do not regard him as an honest man or a fit leader. And in due course, one way or another, they will take their revenge. Well, that is a risk the Conservative Party, I think, this week is taking. And Andrew, you've written, now it's time for the people to decide. Will those local elections in May be read as a referendum on Partygate now that it's all back into the fore? As ever, there'll be a huge interpretative argument about the election results, whatever they are. I do think the Conservatives will probably do quite badly, but they're starting from a low base and they're already charging around Westminster saying, we're going to lose hundreds and hundreds (laughs) of seats, council after council. It's all priced in, it's all priced in, none of it matters. So it would have to be an absolutely overwhelming slaughter of Conservative councillors, probably because of Conservative voters looking at Boris Johnson and deciding not to go to the polls for that to be the case. Now, it's a high bar to set, and I'm not at all sure. Keir Starmer had a slightly difficult week this week in the Commons himself. I am probably more interested in the Wakefield by-election because by-elections have a kind of totemic significance in the weird Westminster way of looking at things that local elections don't. But I think if they have bad local elections and then they're creamed at Wakefield as well, that will be very hard for Boris Johnson. Okay, and it's interesting because I think the story that some Tory MPs are telling themselves is that this is not the time to act against it's, Boris Johnson. I, I, one, Tory advisor, quite the time. <laughs> one Tory advisor said to me, you know, we did depose Margaret Thatcher during the first phase of the Gulf War. So they know that that story about the, the Ukraine war is a bit of a, a thin one. And it seems to be more about the fact that there isn't an obvious successor. Well, we speak to Tory MPs at the moment, and some of them will go for the argument. It's about when, not if. But the question is, when is that going to happen? Is it going to be <laughs> Of course it will be years? when, not 
Not time. At some point, Johnson is going to leave. That is inevitability, but <laughs> that might be a few years ahead. Yeah, and I, th- I agree with Andrew. I think that's. I think you're right there. That the local elections, it's hard to read into uh, because obviously there's lots of local issues being involved uh, or being spoken about and voted on. Independent councillors are a big factor as well. So it's much harder to transpose national issues onto local elections. But when we've got a by-election, you can really see those national issues come to the fore. Boris Johnson is actually, was well, he was on a plane, he's on a visit to yeah. India and he was telling journalists on that plane he will fight the next election. Of course, every leader does say that. Do we think he will fight the next election if you think he's sort of I am hanging begin- on? I am beginning to think he will, and here's mm. why. We go back to what Freddie was talking about. It's never quite the time. It's, it's all, there's always a reason to put it off. The Conservative Party used to be thought of as the most ruthless, least sentimental party organisation in Britain. I think it no longer is, certainly on the ruthlessness side. They're looking for any excuse. And so the thing that I keep hearing at the moment is we're going to see how things are in the summer. Let's wait and see how it is in the, how it all looks in the summer. Once the Sue Gray reports out, once all the fines have been settled and all the rest of it, we'll, we'll look about that. Well, nothing happens in the summer in British politics in midsummer. Then we're into the party conference season. And I can just see Boris Johnson with Zelensky's support behind him and on a great kind of Ukrainian crusade, having a triumphant party conference. And then it's too late to move him. Then we're into the slow or fast process towards the next general election, and they've lost their moment because they'll say we can't change leader just before an election. So I think, by and large, it's much likelier than not that he will lead the Conservatives into the next election. And is that a good thing for Labour? I remember hearing from within uh, Labour's uh, leadership office Mm -hmm. that actually the best case scenario for them is Boris Johnson staggering on because he's dented the Conservative Party's reputation so much. There's an interesting argument going on about that because a lot of people say, you know, he is, he is damaged goods, he is morally unacceptable to lots of, as it were, middle ground, middle Britain, middle Conservative votes, and that's what will kill them at the election. But there are other people, I've talked to quite a few senior Labour MPs from the north of England who say, no, 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 he is still regarded as an extraordinary advantage because my voters, somebody said, my voters don't really see him as a Tory. They see him as one of them. And there's no other Conservatives who's like that. And therefore, there are certainly lots of Northern and Red Wally type Labour people who think that Boris Johnson, even this damaged, is still an asset to the Tories. Mm, but yeah, Freddie, yeah. you've written that the sorry, you've written that um, Tory MPs are playing a dangerous game if they try and stick to Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think so. But you do have to look at the alternatives that there are to John Boris Johnson. They have also become tainted with whether it's tax scandals or part of Partygate as well. We've got to remember that Rishi Sunak is also a, a senior politician who has been fined. So if you do make the switch, you have to look at the alternatives. And I think that is one of the things that Tory MPs are looking at, at the moment. They're going, okay, well Boris Johnson's clearly got lots of problems. But where else do we? go and that's one of the problems and if you did want to look ahead to the next election you have to see who you would put to voters there. I can give you a little mini scoop of interpretation if Boris Johnson goes now or soon the next Prime Minister will be Ben Wallace the Defence Secretary. I think he is overwhelmingly likely to win that contest at the moment, not just because of the work he's been doing over Ukraine, but because paradoxically, he is himself quite close to Johnson. It was in his house that Johnson's original leadership campaign began to be planned. 
The two of them are very close. Ben Wallace does very little media. He doesn't uh, showboat at all. But he is seen by a large range of Tory MPs, including a lot of moderate, generally anti-Johnson MPs, as a thoroughly safe pair of hands. And if you think, look, you look at the alternatives, if you look at Jeremy Hunt, um, who was not a supporter of Brexit, if you look at, though I think he would be a very strong contender, and if you look at Liz Truss being widely mocked for her Instagram posing and so on, I think Ben Wallace is the guy they'd go for. And is he on manoeuvres? He's always, everyone is always on manoeuvres. <laughs> this is politics. It never, ever stops. But if he's on manoeuvres, they're very subtle, clever, quiet, uh, self-deprecating manoeuvres. If you could have a self-deprecating manoeuvre, I'm not sure you can. And you mentioned Keir Starmer's difficult week in a week that should have been a good week for Labour. He got himself into a bit of a tangle at PMQs. What happened there? So this is very, very unfortunate for Keir Starmer, who I think is a thoroughly straightforward, decent and honest man who's all for probity. But he accused the Prime Minister of saying in a private meeting of Tory MPs, the 1922 committee on Tuesday evening, that the BBC's coverage of the Ukraine war was too soft and not acceptable. I can't remember exactly the words he used, but, you know, the, the, the BBC had not done well over the Ukraine war. Now, I've been to the journalists who reported his comments, talked to Gitto Harry, Boris Johnson's head of communications, and I've spoken to Tory MPs who were at that meeting standing right beside Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson, I am sure, did not say quite what Keir Starmer said he said. He did make a comparison between the BBC and the Archbishop of Canterbury's attitudes to the Rwanda refugee policy and their attitude to Putin and Ukraine, but it wasn't nearly as hard-edged as Keir Starmer suggested. And Boris Johnson was the angriest I have ever seen him in the House of Commons. He was absolutely apoplectic. I thought he was going to burst a blood vessel at one point. I'm calling on Keir Starmer to apologise and withdraw. And I have to say, from what I can see, looking at the the detail of what happened, probably Mm. Keir Starmer should apologise and withdraw. Okay, because he spent a lot of time on it on PMQs, didn't he? He was listing the BBC reporters who have been out there reporting on the Ukraine war. Yeah, and I think that was a a big slip up for Keir Starmer because he had the opportunity to really focus on Partygate and try and convey the, the meaning it had for voters. When, if you look at Keir Starmer's performances over the past few months on Partygate, the best ones have been when he's been serious, when he's tried to relate them to, relate Partygate to the experiences of people during the pandemic, rather than this sort of mock disbelief, oh, look at the Prime Minister, what is he doing again? And he wasn't able to do that because he moved on to the BBC. And as Andrew, as you said, Boris Johnson was apoplectic about that and he was able to focus on that. So what you ended up having is a back and forth over what was said, what wasn't said, rather than a focus on the issues at hand. And what it means is that every time from now on Keir Starmer accuses Boris Johnson of being a liar, of misleading the House of Commons, Boris Johnson has said, well, the Honourable Gentleman himself misled the House of Commons and was forced to apologise for it, roars behind him of Tory MPs. So it is a a big loss, as it were. Mm. And I've been hearing that constituents are still angry about Partygate. There's, MPs are still getting letters and emails flooding in, not as many as the Barnard Castle mm. row, but still they're coming in and, and making Tory MPs in particular feel particularly uncomfortable. I just wondered, Andrew, you came on this podcast a while ago and you said that you were angry about mm. it personally. Are you still angry about it? I am still angry about it. And that doesn't matter in a sense. As I said to Jacob Rees-Mogg this week, I buried my father with a very, very small number of people standing around us outside with his church where he'd served as an elder for 53 or 56 years, I can't remember, locked and bolted. We couldn't have all the villagers from the village we come from. We couldn't have his friends. We couldn't have the wider family because we were sticking by the rules. 
And so when I realized that at that same time, there was a boozy party going on in the number 10 garden, I felt really angry. I don't often feel angry, but I felt really outraged. And as I say, that doesn't matter. That's just one story, except that I think up and down the country, there are literally millions of people with similar kinds of stories. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said to get some perspective, didn't he? Get some perspective was his kind and wise injunction, which I will, of course, try to do. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said, on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain, on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. And now it's time for a section I like to call I Ask Alva. So, Alva, you are back home in Belfast at the moment to report on the upcoming Northern Ireland Assembly election. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because we've been talking about the local elections here in the rest of the UK. But this could be the most important election in a generation. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, and I suppose the important first caveat is that the parties here say that every single time. But this time, it probably (laughs) is actually true because of the huge symbolic significance of Sinn Féin being likely to be the largest party here for the first time and therefore winning the right to appoint a first minister rather than the DUP, which is, I say, symbolically significant because... um, I think maybe listeners in the rest of the UK or internationally might be misled by the ter- by the phrases first minister and deputy first minister because it, it constitutionally they're equal joint positions, but they do have a lot of symbolic significance in terms of which is the biggest party. The DUP has been the biggest electoral force here um, for quite some time. 
And so for that reason, it just means this could be the beginning of Sinn Féin, the dominant party here, while also poised to potentially enter government in the Republic of Ireland at the next election. And so Sinn Féin being in part north and south for the first time and what that means for the constitutional future of Northern Ireland and so on. It just means that it feels like there's a lot at stake, even though on a practical level, the idea of swapping the Sinn Féin and DUP first minister deputy first minister positions round doesn't make a lot of practical difference. It's so symbolically huge. Yeah, and because that will be the first time someone from a nationalist party will be first minister there. So that's a, that would be a huge break from the past. But the big question is, what would it mean for power sharing? Because the executive collapsed in February. I think we spoke about it on the podcast back then. Yeah. And this is the thing. The campaign itself has been really interesting. And I think, you know, it's not too late if listeners haven't been following so far. It's not too late with two weeks to go to dive in and start following some particularly interesting seats because I think it will be really fascinating. I mean, not least because of the single transferable vote system, the way transfers work in Northern Irish politics and they ping around all over the place makes it really interesting. But in terms of what it means for power sharing, if the the trend that we're seeing does come to pass, that Sinn Féin are the largest party, then what we were saying when the DUP collapsed the executive a few months ago, as you say, we were talking about it. And basically what we were saying then will just continue to be the case. Like It looks really likely that if Sinn Féin is the biggest party, then the DUP will refuse to nominate a deputy first minister and will enter a long phase of negotiations. But it seems very unlikely that Stormont will be restored. And so there are a few caveats there. Obviously, it could happen the DUP pulls off a more a better performance than we're expecting and the status quo doesn't change even though that's looking unlikely and equally it's possible that the UUP could be this is quite unlikely but the UUP could be the largest unionist party and then they could nominate a deputy first minister there are scenarios in which this doesn't happen but it just seems quite likely at the moment that the DUP will be the largest party the DUP won't nominate and we'll enter months of negotiations and power sharing just won't be restored. And I wrote in this morning's morning call, our free politics newsletter, that I'm getting a lot of questions about whether a border poll is looking more likely here. And that's so interesting. And it's also the question I get asked on broadcast and if I do panels or whatever. But actually that kind of jumps too many steps ahead because just on the very face of it, it's up to the Secretary of State to decide whether to call a border poll. And he only has to do that if it looks likely that a majority would vote in favour of Irish unity, which is just absolutely not the case at the moment. It's about a third of people here. Mm -hmm. So that's not really likely to happen. But in the more immediate term, what is going to happen to power sharing? It just seems quite likely that actually we're going to have this conversation that I feel like lots of people in Westminster or in British media more generally are not really anticipating, which is what is going to happen to how Northern Ireland is run? Are we going to have direct rule? Are we going to have some sort of joint oversight from mm. Westminster and Dublin, from the Irish and British governments? Or are we going to have a situation where we're actually looking at more interesting reforms of of Stormont so that, it, so that these unaligned parties have more of a stake? 
a question around Irish unity and, a, and an eventual border poll could be part of that conversation. But I think that more immediate question is just one that's sneaking up on people and they haven't really thought about it yet. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say just a third when polled are in favour of Irish unity, yet Sinn Féin is topping the polls. Does that mean they're not campaigning explicitly on that issue? They're actually talking about the bread and butter issues as they did in the Irish elections that you, you also covered. Yeah, and, and I think this is probably the most interesting aspect of the whole election because as Sinn Féin's popularity goes up, desire for Irish unity isn't going up. And that puts Sinn Féin in a good position in the short term, but not necessarily a very strong position for its long-term aims. Yeah, as you say, we spoke about their campaign in the 2020 general election in the Republic of Ireland and how Sinn Féin has really built its credibility among voters recently by focusing on issues like the housing crisis. And it has gone from this kind of fringe Republican party, the historic political wing of the IRA, to a credible party of government in the eyes of lots of voters down south. And it's doing the same thing here. It's Obviously, it's different because Sinn Féin has been in the power-sharing executive as deputy first minister for quite a while. But in this election, Michelle O'Neill, the deputy first minister, actually said explicitly at one point that she knows that voters aren't waking up in the morning and thinking about the constitutional question. They're really emphasising that they are focusing on the cost of living crisis and the healthcare system, issues that really matter to people in Northern Ireland right now. And that means that they're putting themselves in a stronger position electorally because some voters who, for example, would be voting Green as their first preference or Alliance as their first preference um, might be better disposed to vote Sinn Féin or to give Sinn Féin what their second or third preference than they would have been a few years ago. So actually Sinn Féin is strengthening its electoral position in a quite interesting way and downplaying this question of Irish unity, which means that we could be in a kind of paradoxical situation in, in just a few years' time where the historic political wing of the IRA is in power north and south but the constitutional question is actually lower down the agenda than issues of housing and healthcare. Wow. OK, and I really wanted to ask you how you feel or what the atmosphere is like among your family and friends. Does it feel like Northern Ireland, does it feel like Northern Ireland is on the precipice of this big change or are people more interested in the issues that you were outlining that are most important to voters? I think it depends on which voter groups you really speak to. So I think it's both that definitely... Voters care about the cost of living crisis, same as voters across the rest of the UK. And there are particular problems with the health service in Northern Ireland that have existed for quite a while. Shortages of nurses, really, really long waiting lists that were a big feature in the 2019 general election and are still very much an issue here. So those are the things that really matter to people. But also there is this huge anxiety in the unionist community about these shifting sands and about, in particular, what the Irish Sea border and the Northern Ireland Protocol represents. We've actually seen that, you know, long before the election, you pick up that anxiety and it was filtering through into the overall British news when rioting broke out a few times um, mm. over the past couple of years. And it definitely means that, unfortunately, this is not an entirely pleasant election campaign. There are some sort of positive bits that I think more women are standing here than ever before, for example, 
there are some interesting new candidates. But in general, I think I would say the mood is quite tense. There was a, a hoax bomb attack by a loyalist paramilitary group when the Irish foreign minister, Simon Coveney, visited Belfast not that long ago, which was which was quite scary for everyone. It was just a hoax bomb, but it meant that loyalist paramilitaries completely derailed talk about, which was meant, it was meant to be a talk about the peace process. And it was yeah. a cross-community event and it, that was massively derailed. And I think shook everyone quite a bit. Mm. And then also election posters had been burned, quite a few, probably more, th- more than you would normally see. And some candidates have been threatened. So in the constituency, my home constituency of South Belfast, the SCLP candidate, Elsie Trainer, uh, was assaulted and subjected to sectarian abuse. So I think that that's all kind of happening under the surface because, of course, it's also the time I've been here, it's been the Easter bank holiday weekend and it's probably the same as with the local election campaigns across England and Scotland and Wales, that people are still thinking about other things. But if you tap into the, into the mood around the election, I think, you know, there are concerns about everyday issues. There are, there's frustration that Stormont has collapsed mm. and maybe won't get back up and running. And then... There is tension because unionists feel like the long established order is slowly slipping away. And these and then these gains, this potential historic moment of Sinn Fein getting the first ministership is is exciting for a lot of people, but it's also very bad news for other people. Yeah, of course. That's really interesting. Thanks so much for taking us through it, Alva, and good luck with the rest of your reporting trip. I'm sure we'll talk about this again closer to the election. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Andrew Marr, Freddie Hayward and Alva Ray. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.